Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. So the gospel reading for this morning is, I think, in the minds of the early Christians, probably the most important miracle Jesus did. Uh, I say that because it appears in all four Gospels, it's the only miracle besides the resurrection that appears in all four Gospels. And Jesus feeding the multitudes is so important to the early church that they recorded not only the feeding of 5,000 men, that doesn't count the women and children, but also the feeding of the 4,000, that's uh, accounted twice in the Gospels. So six times you have Jesus feeding the multitudes, and uh, so obviously very important to the evangelists, to the gospel writers. And so what we see in the lesson this morning is uh, Jesus and the disciples are really set upon by crowds of people. The, the needs are great, and so the need to get away and get some rest is great as well. And Roman numeral one in your sermon outline, page 11 in your bulletin, you, you can draw this conclusion. The greater the demands upon us, the greater our need for rest or time with Jesus. Time with Jesus, rest with Jesus. Come unto me, all you who are heavily burdened, and who labor, and I will give you rest. That's Jesus. And I think what it says is that in the midst of all of our business and all of our busyness, we are accountable to Christ alone. We're not accountable to the crowds, ultimately. We're not accountable to those people who would make demands upon us again and again and again. We are accountable to Jesus the greater those demands upon us, the greater our need to be with Christ, to hear his word, to be in the presence of the risen Christ on the Lord's day, to be hearing his word, his voice every day. And I know that's counterintuitive. When, when you're busy and you have more to do than you can accomplish in a given day, the tendency is, chuck the scriptures. I don't have time for that. I need to attend to my busyness. Well... That's not Jesus. That's not his perspective on your life. I know that's counterintuitive, but all spiritual truth tends to be counterintuitive. It's not what you would expect, in other words, but it's true. Roman numeral two. When Jesus' attempt at retirement fails, Jesus responds not with complaint, but with compassion. He responds not with complaint. I mean, if it were me and I was interrupted in something important, I would probably complain at least under my breath. I try not to show you. But the resentment would be there. But Jesus responds with compassion. And, and compassion in the scriptures is not mere sentiment. It, it's not just a feeling. It's, it's, a, it's a pity that leads to action. So letter A, compassion expresses itself in action. Doing something. 
And letter B, compassion here equals teaching. Words. The words of the Lord. That was the crowd's greatest need, according to Jesus. Jesus doesn't just teach them. He teaches them much. He teaches them at length many things. And, and this is a corrective, I think. It's important to realize this, that compassion in the scriptures is very different than your picture and my picture of compassion, the common understanding of it. Uh, compassion in, in many of our minds is rendering first aid to someone who's been wounded, okay? It's giving financial assistance to someone who's requesting it. It's the work being done by Orphan Grain Train, or Love Chapel, or Lutheran Social Services, and on and on it goes. And those are all important ministries. Don't misunderstand me. But our understanding of compassion has become secularized. We've confined it to temporal, physical needs. That's not Jesus. In Matthew 9, Jesus is teaching in a very crowded house, and it's so crowded no one can get in, so some guys get up on the roof, they cut a hole, they lower a man who's paralyzed on a mat in front of Jesus. What are his first words? It's not take up your mat and go home. It's my son, your sins are forgiven. That's what was most critical for the man, even though he's paralyzed. He needed to hear that. That is compassion. He did the healing after that only to show that he had authority to do the first thing, which was to forgive sins. Speaking forgiveness to someone is truly compassionate. To teach others about Jesus is compassion. But we have to broaden our definition, our understanding of what compassion really is. You know, people today are inclined to think that if you share the words of Jesus with someone, you're shoving religion down their throats. Well, let me ask you this. When Jesus feeds 5,000 men, not counting women and children, with bread and fish, is he shoving bread and fish down their throats? Of course not. If feeding 5,000 people is compassion, then teaching 5,000 people about Jesus is at least as compassionate because you're sharing with them the true bread of life, Jesus Christ. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And to withhold the words of Jesus from someone is not compassion at all. Jesus showed compassion by giving the people words First and foremost, the word of Jesus is the priority of Jesus. In fact, Jesus is so intent in giving the people his words that he forgets all about their hunger. It's not until the disciples start to complain to him, this is a desolate place, the da-da-da, that then Jesus turns his attention to the physical needs of the people. Remember that. The next time you consider inviting someone to Alpha or searching scripture class or to worship, 
Think of it as the compassionate act that it is, because it is. Number one, uh, just some points here. This isn't even getting to the main point of the sermon, but I think it's interesting. Number one, the miracles of Jesus tend to be inconspicuous. We've talked about that before. They're inconspicuous. I mean, unless you knew the backstory and the need that's, that's apparent, you wouldn't know a miracle had occurred. You know, it's like the turning water into wine at Cana, the wedding at Cana. Uh, the master of the feast tastes the wine Jesus made he says, wow, this is the best wine of all. I mean, you've had this around for some, some time, haven't you? There's no idea that it was just made by Christ. No one knew it had been miraculously produced. The feeding of the 5,000 is no different. The people eating, and this is a feast. I mean, there's an abundance of food. They have no idea of its miraculous origins. The miracles of Jesus are very low key. You see this throughout the Gospels. He takes people off to a corner somewhere, off to the side to do the miracle so others don't notice. You know, he, he puts people out of the room before he raises a little girl from, from death. Or he commands silence to the person he's just cured. This is what he does. Uh, and I think, in part, it's because the miracles of Jesus don't save anybody. It's the words of Jesus that save. It's the words of people. It's the words of Jesus that regenerate people. The gospel. And number two, his divine power, his divine power, so helpful to others, he never uses to serve himself. Any man who would use divine power to serve himself could never go to the cross. Now, Jesus is a man who has all the authority of God, all the authority of God, and he lays it all aside. You know, the only time he uses that divine authority is to help someone who's requesting it. That's the only time he, he reveals that he has this power. But he makes no use of it for himself. And think of it. Uh, this to me is remarkable. He's fully human. As much as you are human and I am human. He's, he's fully God as well. But he's fully human. And he has all the power and authority in heaven and on earth. And he won't use it for himself. That to me has got to be the greatest miracle of all. And it's very inconspicuous. Roman numeral three. And this gets to the point. Where Jesus is, there's no desert. There's no desert disappears when Jesus shows up. This place they go to vacation is described as a desolate place. It, it means it's devoid of any human, human habitation because it's devoid of what's required to support human habitation. That's why there's nobody there. I mean, the soil's bad, I don't know. Um, it's just really, really dry. But there's nothing there to support human habitation. And, and here's the point. Jesus has led his disciples to vacation in a place that's unable to support life 
and they've taken, apparently taken no provisions with them. Either the disciples have taken no provisions or the disciples have eaten it. Whatever they had, they've eaten. Because when Jesus says to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. They come back saying five loaves and two fish. But even that's not true. Because the five loaves and two fish don't belong to them. John's gospel makes it clear. That lunch belongs to a little boy who brought it with him. And in John's gospel, Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother, says this to Jesus, there's a little boy here with five loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? What are they? In other words, they are nothing. Such a small amount of food doesn't even move the needle in feeding a multitude, thousands of men, women, and children. Now look at the equation on the top of your page, page 11. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Now, an equation means that two sides of that statement are equal. That's why it's an equation, right? The two sides must balance for it to be an equation. On the right side, we have everything. On the left side, one of the statements is nothing. That means whatever else we have on the left side better equal everything. So is it true? Does Jesus plus nothing at all equal everything? Is Jesus really all that you need in life? Well, where Jesus is, there is an abundance of, letter A, compassion. Compassion, Jesus is doing something, and letter B relates to that. He's sharing words with them. You have the words of eternal life, Lord. That good news. You, you have the words of eternal life that sustain forever, for eternity. There's an abundance of life-giving power in the words. Letter C, there's also green grass. Now, Jesus has already called this location a desolate place, a desert. Okay? Mark, in his account here, has called it a desolate place, a desert. The disciples say this is a desolate place. It's a desert. Now, all I know is that the longer Jesus is there, the less desolate, apparently, it is. Suddenly, there's grass. Mark reports that there's green grass, well-watered grass in this desolate place. Now, how it got there, we're not told, but it's there. And I can't help thinking of Psalm 23, verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. It's as if the presence of Jesus transforms the landscape. And letter D, there's an abundance of people there. In verse 40, uh, part A, in the Greek, you know, it, it says in your English translation that the people sit down in groups. In the Greek, 
the words are, and the word is repeated, prasei, prasei, it means garden plots, groups, you know, in a garden, you group plants together, okay? You organize it a certain way. There's a group of hot peppers over here. There's a group of banana, I'm talking about my garden now. There's a group of banana peppers, and then there's a group of tomatoes, right? And so on. So Mark is describing the people as groupings like a garden. The people are arranged that way in the desert. And you have to think about those passages in the prophets that in describing the messianic age, the desert blossoms, it, it blooms, the, 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 the dry places become fruitful. Uh, I'm quoting from Isaiah 35, for example, the wilderness and the desert will be glad and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It, it will blossom profusely. And it goes on to say, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap like the deer, and, and so on. God's garden is not peppers and tomatoes. It is people. In a desolate place, an uninhabited place, suddenly springs to life. Why? Because Jesus is there. That's the only reason. And then letter E, there's provision. There's an abundance. I mean, wherever Jesus, whether it's an abundance of wine or it's an abundance of food, there's more than enough with Jesus. So what do the people in our gospel lesson for today lack? What do they lack? They lack nothing at all. They have everything, in other words. They have everything they need. The desert area has blossomed in the presence of Jesus. The desolate place overflows with abundance in the presence of Jesus. Jesus plus the desolate place equals everything human beings need. That is to say, Roman numeral four, Jesus is not an accessory to your life. He's not an accessory. He is your life. Now, most of us know what an accessory is. An accessory is what you add to something else to make it better. You can accessorize the outfit you wear. You can accessorize a car or a bathroom, things like that. You accessorize it to make it better. Now, Jesus did not come to make your life better. Jesus came to be your life. Jesus did not come to make your life better. He came to replace your life with his own. He came to live his life through your life. He is no mere accessory. He's come to be everything to you and for you. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly, meaning overflowing. That's what eternal life is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, meaning the words of Jesus. She's sitting at his feet, hearing his words. Martha's busy, and it will not be taken from her. Your kitchen will be taken from you, Martha, but my words won't. So, 
look at the equation again at the top of page 11. If Jesus is not merely an accessory to your life, but if, if he's truly is your life, then what do you contribute to the equation? What do you contribute? My contribution, your contribution is nothing. Nothing. We are the nothing part of the equation. What we lack is nothing in the presence of Jesus. So, do you lack the righteousness that's necessary to get into heaven? The scripture says that Jesus is your righteousness. Do you lack the wisdom necessary to succeed in the relationships that God has called you to be a part of? You know, relationships are, I believe, the most important part of life. But the scripture says that Christ has become for us the very wisdom of God. He is what we need to succeed in relationships with one another. Do you worry that your health is failing, that your job is in jeopardy, or that your loved ones are far from the Lord? St. Paul wrote that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also together with him, it's always together with him, freely give us all things? Are you concerned that your days are numbered? They are and that it's appointed for every person to die. It is. And then the judgment, it's coming. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. He who lives and believes in me will never die. So look at the equation one more time. You and I are the nothing. Now a non-Christian hearing this would say, that's not very nice to say. That's not flattering. But the truth is, you and I are nothing, whether we're part of that equation or outside of the equation. To be nothing outside of the equation is to be lost and condemned. But to be nothing inside that equation is to have Jesus. It is to have everything. In his precious name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.